0: Numbers 35, beginning in verse one, and we're going to read down to the end of the chapter to verse 34. Here, Moses now records these words. The Lord spoke to Moses in the plains of Moab by the Jordan at Jericho, saying, command the people of Israel to give to the Levites some of the inheritance of their possession as cities for them to dwell in. And you shall give to the Levites pasture land around the cities. The city shall be theirs to dwell in and their pasture land shall be for their cattle and for their livestock and for all their beast. The pasture lands of the cities, which you give to the Levites, shall reach from the wall of the city outward a thousand cubits all around. And you shall measure outside the city on the east side, two thousand cubits and on the south side, two thousand cubits. And on the west side, 2,000 cubits, on the north side, 2,000 cubits, the city being in the middle, middle, this shall belong to them as pasture land for their cities. The cities that you give to the Levites shall be the six cities of refuge, where you shall permit the manslayer to flee. And in addition to them, you shall give 42 cities. All the cities that you shall give to the Levites shall be 48 with their pasture lands. And as for the cities that you shall give from the possession of the people of Israel, from the larger tribes you shall take many, and from the smaller tribes you shall take few, each in proportion to the inheritance that it inherits shall give of its cities to the Levites. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you cross the Jordan into the land of Canaan, then you shall select cities to be cities of refuge for you. The manslayer who kills any person without intent may flee there. The city shall be for you a refuge from the avenger, that the manslayer may not die until he stands before the congregation for judgment. And the cities that you shall give shall be six cities of refuge. You shall give three cities beyond the Jordan, three cities in the land of Canaan to be cities of refuge. These six cities shall be for refuge for the people of Israel and for the stranger and for the sojourner among them, that anyone who kills any person without intent may flee there. But if he struck him down with an iron object so that he dies, he is a murderer. The murderer shall be put to death. And if he struck him down with a stone tool that could cause death and he died, he is a murderer. The murderer shall be put to death. Or if he struck him down with a wooden tool that could cause death and he died, he is a murderer. The murderer shall be put to death. The avenger of blood shall himself put the murderer to death. When he meets him, he shall put him to death. And if he pushed him out of hatred or hurled something at him lying in wait so that he died or an enmity struck him down with his hand so that he died, then he who struck the blow shall be put to death. He is a murderer. The avenger of blood shall put the murderer to death when he meets him. But if he pushed him suddenly without enmity or hurled anything out him without lying in wait or used a stone that could cause death and without seeing him dropped it on him so that he died, though he was not his enemy and did not seek his harm, then the congregation shall judge between the manslayer and the avenger of blood. And in Hebrew, that is the word goel, which is kinsman redeemer, avenger of blood, the goel, the kinsman redeemer. In accordance with these rules and the congregation shall rescue the manslayer from the hand of the avenger of blood and the congregation shall restore him to his city of refuge to which he had fled and he shall live in it until the death of the high priest who was anointed with the holy oil. But if the manslayer shall at any time go beyond the boundaries of his city of refuge to which he fled And the avenger of blood finds him outside the boundaries of his city of refuge and the avenger of blood kills the manslayer. He shall not be guilty of blood, for he must remain in his city of refuge until the death of the high priest. But after the death of the high priest, the manslayer may return to the land of his possession. And these things shall be for a statute and rule for you throughout your generations in all your dwelling places. If anyone kills a person, the murderer shall be put to death on the evidence of witnesses, but no person shall be put to death on the testimony of one witness. Moreover, you shall accept no ransom for the life of a murderer who is guilty of death, but he shall be put to death. And you shall accept no ransom for him who has fled to his city of refuge, that he may return to dwell in the land before the death of the high priest. You shall not pollute the land in which you live for blood, pollutes the land and no atonement can be made for the land for the blood that is shed in it except by the blood of the one who shed it you shall not defile the land in which you live in the midst of which i dwell for the lord for i the lord dwell in the midst of the people of israel the grass withers the flower fades But the word of God endures forever. Well, one of the difficult things we have as believers living in the new covenant is what to do with all those passages in the Mosaic covenant that deal with principles of mercy and judgment. Now, there are several reasons why we have difficulty understanding the Mosaic legislation. One of those reasons is that we don't live under it. We are not bound to it anymore. We are not to seek to implement these laws in our civil societies the way that God had given them to Israel in redemptive history. Our Westminster Confession says that God gave Israel as a nation politics sundry various judicial laws that expired with the state of that people except for the general equity. And so these laws are oftentimes so foreign to us because we've never had to live under them. Another reason why we have such a difficulty with understanding the old covenant principles of mercy and judgment and justice are because we are so acclimated to the society in which we live that we we become slave to whatever's around us. And we tend to think whatever society tells us, even if we disagree at points, is the mercy and justice principles that we should we should adhere to all of us to some extent have misplaced notions of societal mercy and justice. But God has put these things in Scripture for the edification of his people. And this chapter in particular is one of the most instructive chapters in the Mosaic Law to help us understand the principle of the unmerited grace and mercy of God. This chapter... Is one of the greatest chapters in the Mosaic Law to help us understand the unmerited mercy and grace of God. Ian Duguid, um, the theologian, in his commentary on this says, This chapter, this chapter is the central point of this chapter is getting the opposite of what you deserve or grace. Getting the opposite of what you deserve or grace is the central point of Numbers 35. Duguid says some of God's gifts are not simply unmerited. They are positively demerited. There is a principle of demerited, undeserved, actually that we deserve the opposite of what God gives us in the account of the cities of refuge. Now, uh, John Owen, the prince of the Puritan theologian, said this chapter is full of good gospel riches. I hope we'll see that tonight. This chapter is full of good gospel riches. Well, what I want us to consider here as we look at this chapter together. First, I want us to consider uh, the first section of this chapter dealing with the Levites. And I want us to consider the cities of grace For the undeserving cities of grace for the undeserving. And then secondly, the rest of the chapter, I want us to consider cities of refuge for the guilty. You can divide the chapter so simply cities of grace for the undeserving cities of uh, refuge for the guilty. Now, notice that as Moses is setting this out, he is giving instruction to The Israelites about what they are supposed to do once they come into the promised land. So Moses is not going to enact this Joshua and Joshua 20 is going to be told to put in force what we read in numbers 35 that God is going to reiterate to Joshua. Now you need to set up these cities of refuge now that you've come into the land and now that you have found some sense of rest in the land. Really everything about this chapter is set against the background of God giving his people rest in the land, right? When they come into the land, the 40 years of sojourning will be over, and God is going to tell Joshua, and I'll do everything that I told Moses to tell my people they were going to do with these cities. And the very first thing that we read here in this section is that God is commanding the people of Israel, notice verse 2, command the people of Israel to give to the Levites some of the inheritance of their possession as cities for them to dwell in. Now, you won't understand the significance of this unless you remember that of all the tribes of Israel, only one was said that they would not get an inheritance in the land, and that was the Levites. Um, In Numbers chapter 18, just several chapters back, verse 20, the Lord said to Aaron, you shall have no inheritance in the land, neither shall you have any portion among my people. I am your portion and your inheritance among the people of Israel. Why did God not give the Levites any physical land inheritance because he wanted them to understand that he was their inheritance. That's pointing to the fact that in the new covenant, Christ makes all his people priests, And Christ, as we heard this morning, is the inheritance. He gives himself to us. The Levites and Aaron, in particular, there are supposed to be a sign that there is a greater inheritance, that ultimately the land, the physical land of Israel was was nothing it was a little tiny down pot de- deposit but that the great inheritance God was going to give his people in Christ was himself that the Lord would be the portion of his people but there's another reason why we should think it strange that the levites are now being told that they're they're going to get a portion of inheritance when God said that they wouldn't and that's because of what happened with Levi and Simeon all the way back in Genesis. Remember back in Genesis when their sister uh, Dinah goes out to the, the women of the land and she's foraying out there. And Shechem, who is a pagan, comes and he defiles her. Um, he, he sexually abuses her. And and then remember, the brothers are outraged and they take it into their hands. Simeon and Levi take it into their hands that they are going to go and, and exact vengeance against Shechem and the men of the of the city in which he lived. And you'll remember the story that that they go out and they deceive the men. They deceive Shechem and the Hittites, and they they try to make a pact with them. If you'll be circumcised, then we'll all live at peace together. We'll take your women. You can have our women. We'll all just be one big happy family. And the the men agree to do that. And when they are sore from the circumcision, Levi and Simeon come in and they execute every last one of them. And that elicits a curse from their father when he blesses the other tribes. He he mentions how vicious Simeon and Levi were and that that no one should even come near them, that that their brethren should depart from them in Genesis forty eight. And so we should find it interesting that not only does God decide that he's going to set aside the tribe of Levi to be the ones from whom the priests come, who are going to mediate between him and the people, but that here in this chapter, he is going to give them unmerited cities of grace, 48 in all. Isn't that awesome? This is the principle that whatever I have, it's by grace. Whatever you have, it's by grace. You did nothing, no amount of repentance, no amount of hard working at holiness. We should pursue those things diligently. Nothing that we have is apart from grace. Everything we have, whether it's your spouse, your job, your children, if you have believing children, it's only by the grace of God. It's nothing that we do. And the principle being highlighted here in this is that beautiful picture of the grace of God to the Levites. He's going to incorporate them into that inheritance. He's going to give them cities. He's going to give them places where they can temporarily settle. And then he's going to make them a blessing to their brothers, because out of those 48 cities, six of those cities strategically placed so that people can get to them very easily are going to be drawn out and set out. And and those Levites are going to dwell in those cities. and, And the high priest among the Levites, the high priest is going to be a representative of the city. He's going to be the highest of the officials in the city. And and we're going to hear what's going to happen, that when the people need to flee there, there is a place of refuge for them. In a sense, God is saying, I'm going to take a people that descended from one that was so ruthless and so barbaric in what he did. And I'm going to make them an enormous blessing to my people. You know, there's another example of this, if you remember. In the Old Testament, there were several rebellions against Moses and Aaron and then Aaron and Miriam rebel against Moses. Everybody's rebelling all the time. That's what we're like. And and in one of the rebellions, there was a guy named Korah who basically said to Moses and Aaron, you take too much on yourself. You think you're so high and mighty. Who made you? And remember what happens to him. The earth opens up and swallows him up. And God shows who he's chosen to be the leader in Israel. One of the interesting things in scripture is the grace of God is so magnified in that numerous psalms were written by who? The sons of Korah. Some of his descendants later in Israel's history, God would call them to be musicians in the temple. And some of the psalms are written by the sons of Korah. Isn't that magnificent? The very descendants of of one who had rebelled so egregiously against God and against his ministers. The same principle is here. God is showing unmerited grace for the undeserving. Um, now we're going to know that's because of Christ, ultimately. Um, it's not just that God winks at the sin of Levi, but because of the Lord Jesus, God's grace superabounds. I love the way the Apostle Paul puts it in Romans five, twenty-one, because Christ, the last Adam, has done everything to cover Adam's sin and our sin and everything that Adam did for his people that Paul will say at the, outset, at the, at the climax of Romans chapter 5, where sin abounded, grace did abound much more. Isn't that beautiful? Where sin abounded, God's grace superabounds. That's the point of the cities that God gives to the Levites. But I want us to consider in a more focused way now the cities of refuge for the guilty. Of the 48 cities that God gave the Levites, six of those were to be cities of refuge. And the chapter tells us that they were to be set in very strategic areas. Now, I've already intimated the point of that is that. God wanted those cities put in places where if someone unintentionally killed another and they needed to flee to that city so that they didn't fall uh, prey to the justice of the kinsman redeemer, that they could get to those cities very easily. It wouldn't take much. They were very accessible for them to get to. That's why those six cities were placed in different areas in Israel. But when when we look at... When we look at the cities of refuge, and I want us to focus on this beginning in verse nine, God is God is providing a really magnificent, really magnificent provision. Um, you could imagine, you could imagine the sense of guilt someone would have if they had killed someone without malicious intent. The, the burden that would be on their souls. You could also imagine in a newly formed society in the ancient Near East where there is not civilization and a justice system set up that they would feel extremely vulnerable. And you could imagine that they would understand that they would deserve the judgment of God if God had not provided these cities of refuge. God had appointed the Goel, the kinsman redeemer. Now, you may be saying, "Wait a minute. I thought Boaz was the kinsman redeemer." And and when you hear about Boaz, right? Boaz is this generous man. He comes out to the field, all his workers are gleaning, and he's like, "The Lord bless you." And they're like, "The Lord bless you." And you just and you just want to hug Boaz, don't you? You feel like you could hug him. And and he is generous. He lets Ruth glean. He protects Ruth. He doesn't touch Ruth when she comes and lays at his feet. There is, there is a charity and a godliness and a maturity and a kindness and a compassion about the kinsman redeemer. But, but Boaz is not yet the kinsman redeemer. Remember, there's a closer one. And he had the legal right to marry Ruth. But he didn't want to marry Ruth because he knew that would financially obligate him and that it would be a burden and it wouldn't be a benefit. And he wasn't a merciful man And so he and Boaz do that weird sandal exchange thing. And I don't even know what that is, but they're exchanging sandals and Boaz is going to get a wife and Ruth's going to get a husband. And it's this beautiful story of redemption. Boaz is going to keep the law in order to redeem Ruth. And now you're like, wait a minute. The Goel is going to shed somebody's blood for shedding their relative's blood. And what you'll realize is in the law, the kinsman redeemer, the goel, had numerous roles that God had established for him. And one of those roles, beyond redeeming your brother's wife, the widow of your brother, or whatever other merciful acts, the land, raising up offspring, among those four main tasks that God had given him, one of those was exacting vengeance on someone who slaughtered your brother. God had instituted that in the law. And so the Goel here is rightly called the Avenger of Blood. And you'll then notice that there is a distinction made between someone who uh, murdered someone unintentionally and someone who murdered someone intentionally. Now, I don't think that we're to take away from that that one deserved to be put to death and the other didn't you see that principle don't you both of them deserve to be put to death but God makes a gracious provision for one to flee to the city of refuge where the high priest is and they needed to remain in that city and if they did they would be safe and then when the high priest died They could go free. Now, if they wandered out of that city before the high priest died, the Avenger of Blood, the Goel, would come and would strike them down. But if they remained in the city until the high priest died, they would be safe. Now, um, what's the point of all that? Well, there is very clearly here a principle of substitution at work, isn't there? Why does God make this provision and how is this provision set up to benefit one who rightly deserves to be put to death. Remember, both the one who does it maliciously and the one who does it accidentally both deserve to die. They both deserve the judgment of God. Both are guilty. Everyone in this chapter is guilty and deserves the judgment and the wrath of God. And yet God graciously provides a city. And in the high priest, he provides a substitute. And what's so interesting is the way all these details work together so perfectly that when is, when is the one who has fled to the city of refuge, when is he or she counted free from the guilt of the bloodshed that they have brought on another? It's when the substitute high priest dies in their place, they can go free. That's the big gospel principle in Numbers 35. When the high priest dies, the people go free. Now, if you are already ahead of me, you understand what this means. This is a picture, isn't it, of the Lord Jesus, the great high priest. And he dies, and when he dies, the guilty go free. And every one of us are guilty. Again, the point of this chapter is not to say some people deserve death and other people don't. We all deserve death. The wages of sin is death. All men are under the wrath and curse of God. Every one of us deserves the judgment of God. There is none righteous. No, not one. And yet the Apostle Paul says that Christ frees us from the wrath to come. He is the great high priest he he lays down his life for his people. He substitutes for his people. If he substitutes for you, if he if he stands in your place and takes the judgment you deserve, if his blood is shed, isn't that interesting? If, if he dies, then you go free. You know, it's very interesting. There's a section in here at the very end. Notice this. Notice verse 32. I'm sorry, verse 33. You shall not pollute the land in which you live, for blood pollutes the land. Why are both parties guilty in this picture? Because in the Old Covenant, God had said that blood pollutes the land. Remember when Cain kills Abel and the Lord says, the voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. What's it crying out for? Justice. It's crying out for God to enact justice against Cain, And then remember, the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 12 says that you've come not to the mountain that may be touched, but to the heavenly Zion, to to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. Do you see what he's doing? He's saying Jesus's blood went into the ground, but instead of crying out for justice against you, Jesus's blood cries out to God to be merciful you know it's interesting the whole thing about the pollution of blood in the land notice you shall not pollute the land in which you live for blood pollutes the land no atonement can be made for the land for the blood that is shed in it and yet god atones for the sins of his people he atones for the true israel by shedding his blood into the land isn't that interesting even in that this is preparing us. Why Why did Jesus' blood not pollute the land at, the, at the, the wicked hands of the Romans and the Jews? Why did his blood not pollute the land? Because his blood was shed to atone for all the guilty souls of his people. Now, I think we've seen here how Jesus is the great high priest. And how he is also the substitute who has his blood shed in the land to forgive the guilty souls of his people. And yet I want us to really focus here at the end on the fact that Jesus is also himself the cities of refuge. He is the city of refuge. How do we get that? How do we get there? Well, remember, the writer of Hebrews talks about not giving up your confidence and your hope And and he says, to those who have fled to him, to Christ, for refuge. I actually think the writer of Hebrews may be drawing off of this chapter. If you fled to him for refuge. Listen to this. Sinclair Ferguson says, Jesus, who has the same name as Joshua. Remember, Joshua puts the cities into place. Jesus, Yeshua, Jehovah saves. Jesus, who has the same name as Joshua, provides us with a city of refuge in which we can hide from the consequences of the guilt of our past actions. And not only a city in which we can hide, but an open door into liberty and life because he is the high priest. The high priest beyond all other high Priest, who has died in order to deal with our sins. Isn't that awesome? He is both the city of refuge and the high priest within the city who substitutes himself to set his people free. John Owen says this, reflecting on this chapter. Listen carefully to this. A poor sinner, finding himself in a condition of guilt, surprised with a sense of it, seeing death and destruction ready to seize upon him, flies with all his strength to the bosom of the Lord Jesus. Wow. John Owen was not known for his preaching, by the way. This is one of his sermons. I want to read that again. A poor sinner finding himself in a condition of guilt, surprised with a sense of it, seeing death and destruction, ready to seize upon him a certain judgment coming. He flies with all his strength to the bosom of the Lord Jesus, the only city of refuge from the avenging justice of God and curse of the law. Isn't that awesome? Owen says, this flying to the bosom of Christ, the hope set before us for relief and safety is believing. You know, I said a little while ago that God had intentionally set these cities of refuge up so that the people could easily get to them. In the same way, Christ, in the preaching of the gospel, is set before men and women so that they can come to him, they can flee to him, wherever you are, Wherever you are, you can flee to him. You don't have to go far. Where you are right now, you are called to flee to Christ as a city of refuge for your guilty soul. You know, I don't know about you, but I feel guilty about everything all the time. I am sure we'll have a conversation after this and I will feel guilty about something. And we need to hear this, that our God has provided in Christ a city of refuge And if we have fled to Christ, he has already atoned for our sins. The high priest has died. He has opened the gates and set you free. He has cleared you of your guilt. The Apostle Paul can say in no uncertain terms, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So that when I think about Judgment Day, what I deserve, all the wrong I've done, When I think about the exacting of God's avenging justice that terrifies my sinful soul. But I see the blood of Jesus and I realize he's died for me and he's taken my sins and I have fled to him. Then I can have peace and know that God has provided an undeserved, even a demerited place of refuge the guilt of my sin and the judgment to come that's why god put numbers 35 in the bible now i have to say tonight if you've never come to christ if you have never trusted in him if you have never taken your guilty soul to him that i would urge you to flee to him that you would go and you would say lord in all my guilt all the wrong i've done i deserve your justice but you have provided a place of refuge And I would urge you to flee to him for refuge. And then I'd say to believers tonight who have fled that there is a real sense in which every day we are called to flee to the city of refuge, the Lord Jesus. We don't just do it one time. We keep fleeing to him. We keep going back to him. We keep saying, Lord, I've sinned against you. Have mercy. You've already atoned for my sins. Receive me. Assure me that you've already blotted out my iniquities. And And the Lord does that. He does it through his word. He does it through his promises. He does it through his sight of the cross. We sang tonight, Jesus, keep me near the cross. Jesus, keep me near the cross. There our souls find rest. I want to read to you the words of an old hymn about the refuge that the Lord gives us as we close. Listen to this. A refuge for sinners the Gospel makes known Tis found in the merits of Jesus alone. The weary, the tempted, and burdened by sin were never exempted from entering therein. Is't that beautiful? We're never exempted from entering into a city of refuge, no matter how guilty. We know ourselves to be in the ways that we've sinned against the Lord. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear tonight what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we do acknowledge the guilt of our sinful souls before you tonight. And yet we also recognize that you are a God who is full of grace and mercy in Christ. We thank you that you have given us in the Lord Jesus a city of refuge for our sinful souls. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that we can flee to you and that we are safe. We thank you that no one is exempted from entering therein. So we pray that you would give us the grace that you would show us our need to flee to you, that you would also remind us that as the great high priest of your church, you have already laid down your life for us to set us free from the guilt of our sin, that your blood has been shed to atone for our guilt and to propitiate the wrath that we deserve. We thank you. We pray that you would press deep into our minds and hearts tonight, those of, that, those of us who have fled to you, that you would remind us that there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in you. We pray that we would find strong consolation and hope in these truths. We pray that you would cause us to grow in the assurance of our salvation. We thank you and praise you, our God, for putting this in your word, for our instruction and for building us up in your son. And so, Lord, would you do that for us? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.